0: Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. What is up? Welcome to the Los Angeles Dodgers podcast on the Believe Network. J.P. Hornstrom with the Southern California News Group. And the Dodgers were almost on the losing end of a perfect game today. I can't believe it. Drew Smiley, ladies and gentlemen, took a no-hitter through seven innings. A perfect game through seven innings, I should say. Did not give up a hit until David Baralta. In case you haven't seen it spoiler alert hits a squibber off the end of his bat ball goes maybe 30 feet and both smiley and jan gomes tried to get the baseball tried to pick it up gomes practically tackles smiley on the turf Anyway, I had to mention that because it was probably the most bizarre ending to a perfect game or no-hit attempt that I have ever seen. I'm not in Chicago. I'm in Los Angeles. uh, So I will include games covered in person and on TV. With that, I don't think we have to talk about today's game anymore other than to say that, once again, the Dodgers find themselves under 500 at 10 and 11 for the season. Quite a few things are going wrong with that. I talked about the bullpen later in this episode with, well, two people, really, we have two guests on today. One is a member of the Dodgers bullpen, Justin Brule, who I spoke about last week. I spoke about Brule in the context of possible changes coming to the Dodgers bullpen because Brule had been off to a good start at Triple-A. Great start, actually. Uh, had not allowed a run. And not to anybody's surprise, I don't think, the Dodgers made a transaction after the last episode, during which I pointed out the Dodgers had not made a single transaction through the first two weeks of the season. Since then just this week alone we've had one two three four five six seven transactions in the last five days (laughs) making up for lost time so brule got called up andre jackson got sent down on monday tuesday luke williams got called up when mookie betts went on paternity leave wednesday yanni hernandez came up when miguel rojas hit the il thursday andre jackson came right back Yanni Hernandez got sent back to Oklahoma City. And then Friday, today as I record, Jake Reed got called up. Jake Reed... (laughs) Poor Jake Reed had to show up in Chicago for a day game after catching a 6 a.m. flight out of AAA. And he didn't even have the craziest week of any of those guys. Yanni Hernandez... So this is all via Alex Friedman of the Oklahoma City Dodgers play-by-play booth. Monday night, Yanni Hernandez flies from Oklahoma City to Albuquerque. Tuesday, Yanni plays in Albuquerque. Wednesday morning, he flies from Albuquerque to L.A. At least so far, we're moving, you know, logically east to west, right? But then Wednesday night, he flies from L.A. to Chicago. Only Friday morning to get sent back from Chicago to Albuquerque. So... Yanni Hernandez's frequent flyer miles are getting rung up this week, big time. Speaking of getting rung up, the Dodgers struck out six times in a row against Drew Smiley, who throws two pitches. The Dodgers have struggled a lot against left-handed pitching this season. I wrote about a little bit of that last week, and really with Will Smith not having come off the concussion-related injured list, that hasn't gotten any better, as evidenced by a 13 nothing loss on Friday. Uh, the Dodgers, like I said, have a few problems going on, but we're not going to dwell on those. I want to get into this interview with Justin Brule because he told me something pretty interesting, something I've really never heard from a player, which is that their focus at A is different from their focus at the major league level in terms of their game plan and what they want to execute. So stay tuned for that. Following Justin, we have Sean Green coming on. We talked about the bullpen. We talked about Madison Bumgarner possibly throwing his last pitch in the major leagues. We talked about the stolen bases, which, in case you haven't noticed, are up. I wrote about that this week for the Southern California News Group. You heard a lot from me last week. You don't need to hear from me anymore. Let's take a quick break and bring on Justin. that' stat line says you've been basically perfect at AAA. Yeah. I'm sure you have a little bit more nuanced critique, but how had it been going?
1: Yeah, I mean, pretty good. Um, striking out a lot more guys than I usually have been, which is, uh, I guess, good to see. I've kind of been chasing strikeouts a little bit more, um, but I mean here, kind of the opposite, just try to get outs, not really chasing strikeouts as much, I mean there's a time and a place for that. But yeah.
0: From a strategic standpoint, what does chasing strikeouts
1: look like for you in terms of how you approach about it? So me, I'm just, I think I'm throwing a lot more sliders this year, I mean that is my out pitch, that's my miss pitch, um, so I'm throwing that a lot more, especially the righties this year, I think that's where I've seen a big difference with uh, striking out righties. It's working. No, no, yeah. It
0: Is Definitely. it the same yeah. slider as last yeah. year?
1: So I changed the grip, I want to say when I was in A in like <laughs> August last year. Um, so it's a little bit different grip. I'm getting a lot more horizontal break on it. I think I'm throwing it a little bit harder too and it's not so like loopy or slurvy now. Uh, So it's a little bit sharper and tighter, I'd say. Plays off the fastball better? A lot better, yeah.
0: Approximate fastball slider ratio, What would you say more sliders than
2: fastball?
1: So I'd say, uh, from what I've seen in AAA, it's pretty like 33, 33 or a third each for cutter, slider, sinker. Okay. So I think last year it was like, 60 or 70% cutter, 30% slider, and then barely any sinkers. So definitely more even across the board.
0: Made a distinction between the approach Triple yeah, yeah, yeah. AAA versus CRC. Oh, yeah. What's, what's the difference Like, why
1: would there be yeah. a difference? So I think for me here, like I think my role here is try to be available every day. So I mean, if I'm trying to get early contact here, I'm going to throw less pitches, ideally be available to pitch every day. Whereas in AAA, I know I'm going to pitch once every third day. I can run my pitch count up or whatever. It's not that big of a deal. But I think my big thing here is just getting early contact, being available to pitch every day.
0: It's a little bit unusual, I mean, I do my turn. It's like, like the role that you occupy kind of, at that level is the role that they prepare you
2: for at this level. You're still a really pitcher. you still face a ton of lefties. Yeah, but
0: like the approach is different. Mm-hmm. Why not have the same approach? At
1: the different. Levels? Um, I don't know. I think more comfortable because I mean, every time I've been here. The, up and down the last few years, that's been my role, just like early contact. That's what they're telling me they want from me. They don't want me to chase strikeouts and stuff like that. So it's more kind of what they want for me, I guess. So would
0: your pitching to AAA necessarily be the same? as
1: Yeah, I think it would be the same okay. uh, for sure. Like that wouldn't change, um, I think just more, I, I, I think I would in AAA. I was trying to like get a little bit more chase, like off the plate, swing and miss. Here, my my main focus is star strikes. Like, that's my big thing. All
0: right, thank you to Justin Bruhl for joining me. Apologies for the audio there. We cranked that one out in the middle of the clubhouse pregame earlier in the week, and so the audio wasn't quite up to snuff. Um, before I bring on Sean. <laughs> Little little production note here. So while Sean and I were talking, he mentions his career stat line against Randy Johnson. And I tried looking it up, and I I couldn't. And it's not really good podcast material to listen to a guy look up information on the internet. So I went ahead and did the work (laughs) uh, this time. And I will tell you that Sean's assessment of his career against Randy Johnson was pretty much spot on. He was 10 for 33 with two home runs. 3 doubles and 4 walks in his career a stout 954 OPS which is absolutely one of the best all-time against Randy Johnson pretty incredible considering Sean Green was a left-handed hitter Randy Johnson obviously a left-handed pitcher really you literally have to go to Barry Bonds to find a lefty who performed better in his career against uh Randy Johnson than Sean Green and I, I don't have it broken down by year, but Barry Bonds batted 409 <laughs> with a 581 on base percentage and an 864 slugging percentage in his career, 22 at bats, three home runs. Anyway, Sean Green owned Randy Johnson. Let it be said here. And we're just going to dive right into that and a few other topics.
2: And now I'd like to welcome back Sean Green. Thank you, as always, Sean, for joining the podcast.
3: Yeah, thank you, as always, for having me.
2: We are speaking here on Thursday, and the news is still somewhat fresh that Madison Bumgarner was designated for assignment today. Uh, if you've seen him pitch this season, maybe not too much of a surprise. He got an ERA in the 10s, and he just does not look like the same guy that the Dodgers saw year after year after year with the Giants in his prime. Uh, but I was thinking about that and reflecting on how, if this is the end of Madison Bumgarner's career, man, that that would be a heck of a career to see go after all the pitching duels against the Dodgers, uh, going head-to-head with Clayton Kershaw on uh, so many occasions some of his back-and-forth duels with Yasiel Puig and Max Muncy. This is kind of a guy that, you know, even though you don't like him as a Dodger fan, it's going to be kind of sad to see him go if this is the end.
3: Yeah, it's always, you need to have, you know, you have your team that's kind of your hero, and you need to have the villains, right? And um, the villains are usually made up of guys who perform really well and teams that you hate, and most Dodger fans hate the Giants. And uh, yeah, he was he was a a key cog in in their kind of championship runs and and the years following when they were you know battling the, the Dodgers against you know like you said Kershaw and him or there's a lot of parallels came up around the same time two lefties and and two you know um, definitely different personalities but but two kind of larger than life characters uh, I think within their respective markets and um, yeah hopefully he can you know he can kind of find it again and come back and uh, you just you just never know sometimes I know he had some, some kind of quirky injuries that that derailed him a little bit but it's definitely kind of a, a bittersweet day I think if you're a Dodger fan because you uh, you hate to see someone like that you know on the decline
2: yeah I I I have to be honest, I haven't followed his uh, side career in rodeo, but I'm I'm not ready to let him go to that full time, uh, he seems too young to me. And and I talked to Clayton Kershaw at some point a couple years ago. I think it was when the Giants, it seemed like they were going to trade him. Um, And ultimately, they didn't. But, you know, obviously, he moved on to Arizona. And for Kershaw, he's such a competitor, like you said. I know it can be hard for players to appreciate all of what we just said. In the middle of their career, I'm wondering, Sean, for you, was there a guy who, even in your career, you knew he was so good that even though you hated to face him, you also kind of loved the chance to go step in the box against a certain guy?
3: Yeah, no, I was I was kind of weird in that I love to face the best pitchers, and I I tend to do better maybe it's because I turned up the focus. My style of hitting was very much understanding what they were trying to do and, and get the pitch out of that that I wanted to hit. And so a guy like Randy Johnson, you know, lefty on lefty, and he's, you know, probably – I said probably the most intimidating picture of our era, just in stature and you know kind of had a funky motion and through you know upper nineties um close to a hundred there and and but I actually hit well against him and i loved i loved facing him um just because you know it's i, I tell people who had never got the chance to play in the big leagues but maybe played little league or high school it's 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 no different really than facing that stud kid in middle league that throws really hard and everyone's kind of nervous and excited and all that. You kind of, it's like, it's kind of the same and that's Randy, I think would be the guy that mm. was kind of a focal foe that I, I, I really enjoyed facing, even though it was a challenge. Yeah. Let
2: me see if I can pull up Randy Johnson's stats here against you. Do you, do you have any, any, uh, uh, level set for me here. Do you do you have good
3: stats? Yeah, I would guess bounces. it's around. I would say it's like just under 300, like maybe 290 or so. A couple home runs. I I uh, and that's also like the first maybe. I don't know, five to, for seven to ten at bats. I struggled really really badly. Um, he actually uh, he pitched his pitches, and once I kind of figured that out, then um, it made it a lot easier for sure. But. Um, I would say it's probably just under 300 against them.
2: So one other thing I wanted to talk about, Sean, uh, I've had this on my mind this week because I just wrote about it for the Southern California news group is the amount of stolen bases that we have seen in major league baseball this year. And it's not so much the amount of steals as it is just the number of successful attempts that we've seen. Like catchers just cannot throw out anybody And that's if they even try, because I've seen more uncontested steals in the first three weeks of this season than I just sometimes see in an entire year, it feels like. Almost, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but the stolen base is back, but it's back in a way that we really haven't seen. And when I think about all the new rules that we knew were coming into this season, this is probably the one thing that I just was not prepared to see. Is, is guys who couldn't steal uh, to save their life are now just expecting to be able to steal. Uh, it seems like stealing third base is a given, and I don't know, Sean. Do you like this change? Do you like the stolen base, and do you like the 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 uncontested stolen base uh, at the volume that we're we're seeing it so far in the season?
3: Yeah, I mean, I love the intention of it, and I think you know. I, I think they've done it baseball's done a great job of the process behind bringing these new these rule changes in by testing the minor League and getting data around it um I think everyone loves the pitch clock um the bigger bases i for me i i don't I don't really know if that, how relevant that is I mean it just seems a little i don't know um kind of take it or leave it um but the pickoffs I think are limiting the the number of pickoffs and and creating some punishments around if you exceed it and don't pick the guy off at. I think that it starts to get a little tricky. And, and look, they're trying to be progressive, and it's not like everything is going to work out perfectly. So um, they've been pretty clear that, you know, all this stuff is it's like, you're going to see how it goes, and um, we could always massage it to make it better. And and I think that's probably what's going to happen on stone bases. It, it should be – I don't know what the historic – you probably have all this, you probably wrote about the historic numbers around success and failure uh, attempts. Um, but it, it I think they can kind of get it closer to that. Um, I think it makes a ton of sense. It may be even exceeding that because of the new philosophy is not to waste it out trying to steal a base. So mm-hmm. to encourage a more exciting game, more exciting style of play, um, there needs to be a likelihood of success, more likelihood of a likelihood than a a failure. And I don't know what that threshold is. It seems maybe it's a little too high right now.
2: Yeah, I can definitely see the pitching contingent of the Players Association deciding to bring this up, uh, maybe even before the next collective bargaining agreement expires. Uh, But I can also see the catchers uh, raising a red flag. I, I was talking to Buck Showalter about this just on Tuesday, in fact, And what he he told me something interesting. He said that he kind of has to, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but basically there's like a psychological toll that this is taking on catchers who really probably at every point in their baseball playing career had been considered a good throwing catcher with an above average arm. And with that comes a certain percentage of guys you expect to throw out, whether that's 50 or 60 or whatever it may be. Nobody's throwing out 50% of base stealers now. Nobody's throwing out 60%. Uh, you know, JT Realmuto. I did look this up. He, he was the best base stealing preventing catcher last year. He threw out I think 44% of, of runners. He's down to 29% um, as of wow. a couple of days ago. And I just wonder if there's enough support among pitchers and catchers to kind of stop this. That it would rise to the attention of the players' association, and they would try to change the
3: rule on the fly. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it seems like it's kind of a bit of limit, limited number of games right now to to make too big of a assessment of you know what sure. what success looks like. But um, it's it's definitely clear that it's it's producing um, the rules are are creating a little bit too much of a no pun intended, but a runaway train. Right. I think <laughs> one of the one of the areas of adding stolen base back into the game that a lot of people don't think about as much. And when, probably my best offensive year was when I was with the Blue Jays. I was hitting third, and I had Shan Stewart leading off, um, who had 300-ish, a little over 300 probably, and stole maybe 40 bases. And hitting ninth was Homer Bush, who we acquired from the Yankees. And he also hit around 300 and stole, you know, 30 or something, so on bases. So every time I was up, it seemed like they were on first. One of them was on first base, and there's a threat of a stolen base. And I was getting fastballs away, so the catcher would have a better chance to throw them out. And that's what, where I liked the ball, and it made it a little easier um, for me to to get the pitches I wanted to hit. And I think if the catchers and pitchers and catchers are kind of giving up because it just seems like a impossible task to to throw throw people out then they're not going to worry about throwing those fouls away. They're just going to pitch like, you know, they're always going to pitch. And maybe that's the philosophy now. Maybe that's one of the reasons they're not throwing as many outs. Maybe they're throwing a lot of breaking balls because they don't want to veer away from what the the analytics say, how they should pitch guys. I don't know. Um, But that's, I think, a part of the game. And they want to create more offense, more movement. Then you want to encourage enough of a chance to throw the runner out to Encourage the other team to throw more fastballs away, where guys probably uh, have a better chance to hit the ball. Well,
2: I'm, it's funny. I'm looking at your first two years with the Dodgers, and you went 44 for 53 on stolen base attempts. You would have fit right in with today's game, Sean. Your base stealing philosophy was tailor made for the analytics era. It's pretty good. I
3: didn't realize like that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I started stealing. I was kind of. I had a lot of the green, the red light. My first few years under Cito Gaston, um, he didn't want me to run much and just wasn't as big of a approach for him from the sole base side. And then when he got fired and they brought in Tim Johnson, and like, okay, you have the green light, now I'm playing every day. And I was, got really aggressive um, with the sole bases. And I probably was throwing out a lot, but I sold 35 bases. And so I kind of got that confidence. But as I got older, I learned um, – when to, to pick my spots. And I think that's, that's kind of a a key thing that comes with maturity is you you really get to understand, you know, the, when you're going to have a good chance to be successful based on, you know, the pitching patterns, you know, the catchers. You even kind of could tell maybe when a catcher's getting a little complacent and isn't, isn't kind of bouncing up there as, as quickly after different pitches. And you sort of sneak a sink your soul mason. And that's, that's kind of how my philosophy. Was a stone base because I wasn't, you know, a, you know, super quick off the line type runner. Um, especially being, you know, 6'3", six, 6'4", six, it took me a couple steps to get going full, full steam. Um, and not like Dave Roberts and he was, you know, one step and he's full speed. So yeah, I mean, I think it's, and I, I would imagine a lot of players kind of forgot or, or maybe never really stolen stole, stealing bases isn't really part of their, game and now that it's becoming a thing they're kind of learning as they go even though they're having a lot of success right from the start
2: yeah i i personally kind of find that entertaining uh on the average but again i'm I'm not the guy who's on the mound trying to hold the dude on or, or trying to throw him out from behind the plate so I'm, I'm kind of interested to see which which way the political wins go among players on this speaking of guys on yeah. the mound um <laughs> the, the the dodger bullpen is uh we'd be remiss if we did not mention uh One area in which the Dodgers have struggled this season, probably the one I hear the most about from fans, I feel like it's always this way, right? The fans just want to fire the bullpen, Um, but (laughs) you got to let it play out. So far, it hasn't played out well. I'm looking at the stats here. Dodgers are, uh, as of this recording, two and three with a 5.01 ERA, not what you would expect from this Dodger bullpen, but then I don't know, do you ever really know what to expect from a bullpen at the beginning of the season, even if it's the same guys, even if it's the same cast, which the Dodgers mostly have? I feel like it always takes more than three weeks to settle the roles out, uh, especially when you don't have a set closer like the
3: Dodgers. Yeah, and I've kind of said all along, I I think it's, it's sort of a miss to not have a set closer. I think it's easier for, you know, to to avoid some of some of this because everyone kinda of goes in the season with with more of an understanding of where they fit in. And and being in the late innings is there's such a psychological component to it, a confidence to it. Um like I remember some closers I played with, like um you know, some some guys are really good if if we were down by a run and they'd come in there and it was lights out. If we were up by a run then they you know, get a little tighter and, and, uh, and a couple of guys get on base. It's always, even if they do get the job done, there's always a little, a little shaky. And so I think it's important to have some sense of, of what your role is. And that's, that's maybe one factor. Um As you said, there is, it is early this season. Everyone likes to extrapolate, you know, a couple of weeks in three weeks in and say, this is how many wins, home runs, all this, like whatever it is. And it's, it couldn't be further from, you know, the reality of how things are going to turn out. But, you know, my attitude has always been the first quarter of the season, a really big part of it is a team takes on an identity and that identity tends to stick for the year. And so that's, that's a concern. And bullpen I think is crucial in today's game. It always has been more than ever. And if the identity of the team is, we're really good, but we, we struggle with our bullpen in the late innings. That's a scary thing. And the only way to solve it, you know, is usually through a change in personnel. I'm not saying they're at that point yet, uh, but I was on teams. One year with the Dodgers is Oh three. We had a really good bullpen, good pitching staff, but we couldn't get guys in from third base and we'd lose a lot of one run games. So it was always like, get, we got to, we got to figure out how to get those runs in. And then it's like when guys are in third base, everyone presses because it's like, okay, that's, and so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And same thing with bullpens. Like, get to the sixth inning, we're lights out. That was the 0-4 team. Um, and so that was the identity there, and we won. And so, anyway, this is kind of a long-winded way of saying, I don't think it's right to extrapolate, you know, wins and losses and stats like this early in the year, but it is important to create that identity, that narrative of who we are as a team.
2: The interesting thing to me, Sean, is that good relief pitchers can almost come from anywhere. Like, we saw Evan Phillips, who's kind of the not official closer, but kind of that default guy right now. He had played for two teams literally in the week before the Dodgers claimed him off of waivers, and after that, it was like he was magically fixed and suddenly good back into the bullpen option. But you probably saw... Maybe one of the most dramatic examples of this in my lifetime, next to Mario on Rivera going from the right. Yankees rotation to the bullpen, you saw Eric Gagne do it. And we saw him go from, you know, an okay starting pitcher into an all star closer literally in the span of one season. Uh, I don't know where the Dodgers are going to find bullpen help this year, but you've seen it firsthand. Is turning a pitcher into a quality reliever uh, as simple as Eric Gagne made it look? Or how did he do that? Like, <laughs> what happened there?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's he definitely had, and he proved it, he had that mentality. You know, a, a hockey player from Quebec or from Montreal, given that role, it fit him really, really well. Uh, whereas a starter also his stuff you know he could air it out for one inning the stuff went from you know throwing in the you know as a starter sitting at 93 94 and all of a sudden he's throwing 97 98 and hitting his spots he had the the same control he's always good with his you know his control he had a good change up and then all of a sudden you you, know, you just spare it out for one inning and you still have that control you're kind of a different pitcher and, and John Smoltz was was an all-star in both positions, but he was able to make that transition and threw a lot harder as a closer than he was a starter, right? He just let it all out of the tank. Um, so I, I think mentality is a, is a big part of it. Um, you know, it, maybe there's guys in the minor leagues that they'll want the starters that they say, hey, this guy could be great we need help, you know, in a couple months and don't like what we have here. Obviously, there's trades, but... Um, you know, it's again, it's too early to start to give up on, you know, the bullpen as a whole. Um, but it is, it is a cautionary. I think probably the most um, uncertain part of the team is if that doesn't sort of figure itself out or they don't find some pieces to switch out, then that could be an Achilles heel throughout the season.
2: Yeah. Well, Andrew Friedman is notorious for figuring it out eventually, so I I, I will not bet against him this time either. (laughs) I agree. Well, Sean, thanks for hopping on here. I I know you're uh, in transit, so I appreciate the uh, the drop-of-the-hat interview, and uh, always a pleasure to pick your brain and and have you on again.
3: Yeah, I look forward to the next time, and and, uh, hopefully there's a a good series ahead here in in Chicago.
0: That will do it this week's episode thank you as always for joining in if you have not done so please rate review and subscribe love to have you back next week this podcast is a little bit more consistent than the